Today we come to a question that Jesus asked that depicts the most tragic and difficult moments of his life. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear the anguish in Jesus' voice and in his heart. We imagine what Jesus was thinking about as he hung on the cross. We know early on exactly what Jesus was thinking about. He's thinking about people. On the Via Dolorosa, he speaks to the women who are weeping, even of his executioners as they impaled his hands and feet to the cross. He thinks of them, Father, forgive them. To the criminal at his side, today you'll be with me in paradise. To Mary, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Jesus was thinking about people even as he hung on the cross. And then at noon, Scripture says, God turned the lights out. He brought the curtain down on the scene. So 3 p.m., it was a supernatural darkness, the dark of the deepest part of the night, as though God was saying to the world, all right, you've had your fun, you've had your say, this is private. This is between Jesus and God alone as Jesus becomes the sin of the world. And the first thing that is heard in that darkness is Jesus crying out, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? I think there is indication in Scripture about what Jesus was thinking and focusing on once the lights went out. In John's recording of Jesus' death, we see this passage. Knowing that everything had now been completed and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, think about that. I'm going to read it again. Jesus, knowing that everything had now been completed and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. This isn't just out of physical thirst. There's there's a purpose to it. Their response is to give him wine vinegar, and that was a direct fulfillment of the 69th Psalm, another messianic psalm that says, they give me vinegar for my thirst. So, That passage and how we're going to approach this question today helps me understand, and I'm going to suggest to you that what Jesus was thinking about in that darkness was Old Testament Scripture. He was fully aware of what he was doing in that moment. He not only had seen it coming from his ministry years, we've seen that throughout this study. Scripture says it was God's plan before the very foundation of the world. And it might surprise you to know that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not just a cry of anguish. He was quoting scripture. Some of you may know that he's quoting the 22nd Psalm. You see, aware that what he was doing was fulfilling scripture. I believe Jesus was pointing us to this Psalm That's where we're going to go today. You're going to want to turn to this. If you've never studied Psalm 22, you're going to want to read this because you're going to say, could this possibly be in the Old Testament? 
I'm going to read the, the whole psalm and just let you take it in, and then we're going to look at it and see what it might be that Jesus wanted us to understand. Now, this was written by David. David was the king of Israel. He's also a great musician and psalm writer. But he is also a prophet. In fact, Peter, his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, declares that David was indeed a prophet. In most of the messianic psalms of David, there is both an event or a set of circumstances in his life that the psalm is about, and yet there's a secondary foreshadowing about the descendant of David who would come. Scholars from every persuasion of theology agree that there is no event in David's life that matches this psalm. It is clearly, exclusively, a vision of an event that will happen a thousand years from the point when he writes it. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. It would be seven centuries before the Romans introduced crucifixion as an excruciating form of execution to the Jewish people. The Persians began doing it somewhere in the sixth century B.C., This is even four centuries before that. Seven centuries before the Romans used it and 10 centuries before Jesus. With all that background, let's let's read it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, You have been my God, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, and a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. 
Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Even posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Wow. Jesus was saying, look and learn. See what I am doing and see that it was always the plan. This psalm is broken down into two segments. The first half is about the suffering Savior. And the second half is about the triumphant Savior. I believe the intent here is for us to understand that Jesus did not just die in tragedy, but he died in triumph. Let's first look at the suffering Savior. We see three things in this psalm that grow out of that in the first half. The first, and I want to be clear about this, Jesus did suffer alienation from the Father. Jesus became our sin and suffered God's judgment. And central to the impact of sin in our lives is alienation from God. Isaiah in the 59th chapter speaks about this. Say this with me. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is the relationship that you as an individual and that the human race, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, have with God because of our sin. And when Jesus Christ represented and became that sin for us, the Father turned his face from him. Imagine the one who not only was with God, but who was God. That mystery of the Trinity, they had experienced fellowship never broken in eternity past up until this moment, somehow God the Father separates himself and turns from his son. Ask me to explain that, I can't. Any more than I can really explain the Trinity. But I believe it. And I'm grateful for it. But he doesn't just experience alienation from the Father. He experiences alienation from the people Jesus was rejected and mocked by the Jewish people and spiritual leaders. What did Felicia read in Matthew 27? Those same leaders who once they saw Jesus being crucified and in their mind thought that they had won, 
start mocking him. Do you remember what they said? He trusts in God. Let God save him. (laughs) Verse 6, Psalm 22. But I am scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Do you think for a minute that the religious leaders who had rejected Jesus as their Messiah would intentionally quote an Old Testament messianic psalm that affirms that he indeed was the Messiah? Absolutely not. If you're a skeptic, I don't know how you can see this psalm and not see the supernatural reality that is in the life and work of Jesus. Defies explanation from a natural point of view. The third part of the psalm, Jesus suffered an excruciating death to fulfill God's plan to save humanity. What makes this even more meaningful is that it doesn't just describe crucifixion centuries before it was invented. It describes a particular person's crucifixion. It specifically describes the crucifixion of Jesus. Here are some details. He was impaled to the cross by spikes through his hands and his feet. Many people think that you die from exposure, and often crucifixion would take a very long time. But what happens is as you hang there, your joints come out, and you're unable to continue to hold yourself up. And so eventually, that pressure causes you to suffocate to death because your joints are out. You can't pull yourself back up to breathe. Our pictures portray Jesus wearing a loincloth, but in reality, he was exposed completely, total humiliation. Because of the the scourging he had received, the flesh had been torn away so that bones themselves were readily seen. They took a spear because Sabbath was coming and they needed to get this over with and they put it up through his rib cage into his heart. And scripture records that blood comes out as you'd expect, but also water. Do you understand that that means that Jesus died from congestive heart failure? And of course there's that scene where while all this is happening, the soldiers are down there divvying up the clothes, casting lots for them. So now, we're going to read beginning at verse 14 again. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for garment. Do you see it? He's saying, read it, look at it and watch, because I'm doing this for you. But he's also saying more than that. There is a decided turn in the psalm. It's as though the music track 
goes from being in minor to major. There's a change in tone. I will declare your name to the people, you who fear the Lord. For he has heard my cry. He has listened to me. The Father accepts Jesus' sacrifice, hears his cry for restoration. This defining moment is no defeat. It is a victory. And this is the moment that the world will hear of. Not just the Jewish people, but the whole world will know it. Posterity, generations to come, people yet born will know of this moment. And what that means is that Jesus dies not in despair. Jesus dies in triumph. John lets us know in his story the last words that that Jesus says. Three words. Who, Who remembers them? It is finished. That's in John's account, the last words of Jesus. Matthew doesn't give the specific words, but he says that he cries with a loud voice. Now, in the Greek, that phrase, it is finished, is actually just one word. The translators put the direct object in it to help us understand it. I think in this case, it takes away from the power of it. Because the single word that Jesus cried out was finished. Can you just imagine? He takes the last bit of strength he has to pull himself up, to fill his divine lungs with the air of earth and shout with triumph, it's done. And he gives up the ghost. Now, I'm going to take you to the last passage of the 22nd Psalm. This is going to blow your spiritual socks off. (laughs) Let's say it together. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to people yet to be born, he has done it. Four words, say them. He That phrase is one word in Hebrew. The translators put in a direct object to help us understand it, but I think in this case they took away the power of it. The Hebrew word is asa. And you know what it means? I think you guessed it. Finished. Complete. Do you understand this? From the moment Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the moment he cries, finished. He's preaching. He's pointing to what the prophet saw a thousand years ago. And he's saying, do you see what I'm doing? I am taking on your sin that you might become my righteousness. I'm experiencing your alienation from God so that you might experience relationship and fellowship with him. I'm taking on your death so that you might know life. I'm experiencing your hell so you can experience my heaven. Jesus, we we see, we understand. We're so grateful. This was the joy that was set before you. 
for which you despised the cross and endured the shame of it. It was the joy that we, those yet to be born, would hear of this glorious moment and know that it was all finished. You did everything that was necessary so that we might move from sin to righteousness, from death to life, from being foreigners to being called sons and daughters of God. Father, thank you. Thank you. You did not ultimately forsake your son, and because of him, you do not forsake your own and never will. In Jesus' name, amen.